Okay, at the end of World War II, at that summit, Truman, Churchill, and Stalin decided what they would do with conquered Germany. You can look at your map of Europe back here. Germany was going to be divided into four zones. A French zone, a German zone, an American zone, and a Russian zone. Now do you see how Berlin here is quite close to where Poland, Russia is? Berlin, which was a city of three million people, was also divided into four zones, even though all of Berlin was inside the Russian zone. Berlin was divided into East Germany, was given to the Russians, and the rest of Berlin was divided into four zones. In Berlin and in Germany, United States and Britain and France wanted to get these people of Germany back on their feet and had a more lenient policy. Russia, which had just had lost millions and millions of men to Germany, wanted to keep Germany weak and under its thumb. Part of the agreement, I think it was at Yalta, the Yalta summit, was that Russia would liberate Europe from the east, but Stalin promised to put in democratic governments in all of these freed countries. But what Stalin ended up doing was putting in pro-communist puppets as he went, extending his police state, his reign of terror. The United States was very much against communism. They knew that it was an evil and they wanted to destroy it. Truman had a very hard line against communism. The U.S. believed that communism would collapse. So if you could just contain the spread of communism, it eventually would collapse under its own weight. They didn't think it was an economic system that could support population and growth. So their job was to contain communism. In 18, 1946, Winston Churchill, who had been replaced as prime minister in England, told an American college, remember this is just a year after the war, he said an iron curtain has descended upon Europe. It was not a very popular speech because the United States was not ready to accept that their World War II ally in less than a year had also become the enemy. But today, Winston Churchill's speech is a landmark speech as far as its prophetic insight and in that he saw what was happening. The United States was concerned about how poor and broken up physically and emotionally Europe was. It is hard to fathom how terrible Europe was after World War II. The starvation, the famine, the, the loss of men. Between, there was very few men between the ages of 10 and 50 because they had been killed in so many different battles. Germany had displaced thousands if not millions of Europeans when they went into a country 
to bring them into their homeland, into Germany, to work in the German factories, because Germany had lost so many of its own men and needed a labor force. So it was basically making slaves of people and forcing them to work in Germany, something that had not happened in world history for hundreds of years, where you actually forced people, civilians, it was a common practice to use prisoners of war and make them work. But to go capture civilians and make them work for you was quite a violation of international protocol, but Germany did it. So when Germany collapsed, there was millions of workers who wanted to get back, but they had no money, there was no infrastructure, the, bomb, the trains had been bombed, there was no food. The European countryside was covered with people who were starving to death. Displaced humans, people lived in fear. You know, when you have wild animals running through your streets, you're afraid. When you have wild, starving humans, you are really afraid. And the people just lived in fear because, uh, I mean, it was like an apocalyptic movie. Children who grew up in this time remember finding bombs half detonated and, and playing with them and playing with really dangerous equipment. It was just a terrible time for Europe. Now the United States was afraid that communism, the seeds of communism would grow best in nations that were very poor because communism promises the savior, that the government will be your savior. It'll take from the wealthy people who don't deserve it and it will meet your needs. So when you're a starving, homeless person with no infrastructure, your money's not worth anything, you can't find a job, communism looks very attractive that a government will come and will start giving you the bare necessities of life. The United States, because of this, realized they needed to get Western Europe on its feet as quick as possible to prevent the spread of communism. The United States developed the Marshall Plan, which at first it was, they offered $5.8 million worth of aid, which was food or loans, or in the case of Greece, it was the Missouri Mule to try to help these farmers get back on their feet. Greece, the farmers in Greece had this cute little mule. The Missouri Mule that came was about twice the size of the mule that the Greek farmers were used to. <laughs> and this, I've seen a picture of a, the mule that the Greeks were used to alongside a Missouri mule trying to pull. And it was quite the rodeo as these mules came off the plains and these Greek farmers tried to handle this. But this Marshall Plan, the US ended up sending $13 billion worth of aid to try to get Germany and France and these other European countries back on its feet. The West Germany in Berlin bounced back pretty quickly with aid from the West. All four divisions worked pretty well. Same thing with West Berlin, bounced back pretty quickly. The United States introduced a new currency into West Berlin because the, the previous currency had become worthless after Hitler fell. The Russians did not like the fact that West Berlin was rapidly coming to its feet. 
So you remember the map how Berlin is, was completely in the German zone, I mean the Russian zone. There was three roads into Berlin that Russia had said they would not block. So the Allies could make it deep into the Russian zone to help the people of West Berlin. Russia was upset about this new currency so Russia blockaded Berlin as a political tool to say, stop giving people this money, revoke this money, and then we'll lift the blockade. But for the next year, Allied planes flew in coal and food into West Berlin to help get the Berlin people through the winter. Russia had, had cut off the power supply. Pretty amazing thing for Berliners where just a couple years, a few years before, Allied planes was a sign of terror as they were dropping terrific bombs on you. Now they were dropping coal and your necessities and they were viewed as a source of, of life. They were able to get Russia to release the blockade and West Berlin was spared. It was a really scary time because they already saw what was happening during this whole blockade. East Berlin was given electricity and good time trying to lure as many people from the Allied sector of Berlin into the Soviet sector of Berlin. But this was a, a really scary time. The communists quickly squelched any uprising in these, the so-called satellite countries which would include Ukraine and Czechoslovakia and um, Hungary and Poland. They came under communist rule. They put in communist governments. Anytime one of these countries would try to put in a democratic leader, there was a couple times Russia brought in tanks, put down the uprising by force. Just a terrifying time. Stalin was a very evil man who thought nothing of killing someone. Even people in his own party lived in terror of making a mistake because they had seen other people make mistakes and quickly die. Russia and the Allies had also divided Korea, which had, was under Japanese domination, into North Korea and South Korea on the 38th parallel. Kim Song-il, who's actually the grandfather of the current North Korean dictator. What? Yes. It changed a few years ago. But as far as either the grandfather or great-grandfather, but there's been an unbroken line in North Korea, which was the Russian zone, so a communist dictator was put in place. And South Korea was given to the Allied zone, and it's amazing the difference. There has been a tremendous revival in South Korea. The church is thriving. Koreans are technically advanced, wealthy, and just to the north they live in terror and oppression. But in 1950, Kim Song-il, with Russian support, invaded North Korea. After World War II, there was the creation of the United Nations again with the idea of being able to settle disputes 
with debate in a public forum with witnesses as opposed to just bombing the other side. Kim, the United Nations said that this invasion of South Korea was a, a violation of protocol. So they assembled the United Nations Army, put Douglas MacArthur, who was overseeing the reconstruction of Japan. Douglas MacArthur gave Japan a new constitution, injected life, and Japan, which had been bombed with atomic bombs, within 10, 15 years had become an economic superpower specializing in little cars and then transistor radios and they were on the cutting edge of technology and by the 70s and 80s, made in Japan was no longer an insult, it was, it was a compliment. Japan has since grown to be a very elderly, male-dominated society and is not near as healthy. But Douglas MacArthur and his was the closest to Korea in Japan and all the American troops for the last five years had just been living, getting fat and lazy and enjoying having a, a party in Japan in their occupation. They were in no fighting shape. But North Korea made it deep, almost all the way to Seoul. Is it Seoul or Seoul? Seoul? Seoul. Something like that. <laughs> Douglas MacArthur led, and if, if you look at this map of Asia, there's a very tiny, anyway, Korea's too small. There's a Incheon, which is just on the northwest section, uh, above the 30 line, Winston Churchill led a, Winston Churchill, no. Anybody remember who it was? Douglas MacArthur. Led a daring invasion at Incheon, cut the Korean troops off, and slaughtered them back to the 38th parallel, back to the where war was when it started. Douglas MacArthur said, let's just clean up the rest of Korea. Let's just move north. And the United States was worried that China would invade Korea. In 1949, the end of the Civil War, from World War II until 1949, China had had a civil war between communist Mao Zedong and nationalist Chiang Kai-shek, something like that. Chiang Kai-shek. And Chiang Kai-shek was the recognized Japanese leader, but Mao Zedong in 1949 won but Douglas MacArthur said, look, let's just clean up North Korea and the, I promise you the Chinese won't get involved. Truman said, no, we don't want to risk war with Russia. We're not ready. Russia could, or China could come to your defense. So MacArthur went to the public and said, this is my plan for battle. Overrode his supervisors. MacArthur was removed from power but the United Nations continued with their invasion north. China sent a million men into Korea, and it was during the winter, and it was, the it was a terribly cold war. It was, it was during this war that one of the UN generals said, men, the enemy's behind us, to the left of us, to the right of us, and in front of us. 
They're not going to get away this time. <laughs> but the Korean War, that first winter, all these men, they thought the war was over once they had chased him back to the 38th parallel. It ended up being a slaughter, and for three years, it was an absolute mess in Korea as the United States started dropping bombs indiscriminately on North Korea. And because of that, the United States dropped more bombs on Korea during the Korean War in three years than they had dropped all of World War II. Just a really ugly time for the Korean War. Back at home, there was getting to be a real hysteria of, of communism. J. Edgar Hoover, leader of the FBI, had it in his mind that there was communist infiltration. He said it's all through Parliament, it's all through Hollywood. Ironically, the FBI started using police state tactics to spy on people, the very same tactics that they were saying would be so deplorable that the communists would bring into the United States. So they started having neighbors spy on neighbors, getting reports, getting files on everybody. Martin, uh, J. Hoover was convinced that Martin Luther King and the whole civil rights movement was a communist front. So he had files on Martin Luther King, had spied on him, discovered some of Martin Luther King's less than stellar character qualities. In Hollywood, they brought all these suspected people before a panel and the panel would say, have you ever been involved with the Communist Party? And people like Gary Cooper and Ronald Reagan were adamant that they hadn't been. But there were the Hollywood Ten. There were a group of actors and writers. They wouldn't say. They thought it was against their constitutional right to be inter interrogated like this. But they were blacklisted in Hollywood, and they weren't able to get work. In this documentary I watched, this Russian girl said, we were taught that the capitalists were the evil one and that we were in constant fear of them coming to bomb us and destroy our factories and kill us. We couldn't imagine that the capitalists were afraid of us. So both sides were living in fear of each other. But things were not equal. Stalin would put all of his industry into show, so that in places like Moscow, you would go there and go, wow, this is a utopian paradise. There's lots of goods, different types of clothes, thriving economy, everybody's fed, everybody's got work. But other parts of Russia that nobody could get into were starving. It was a terrible life for these people in Russia. It was very difficult for U.S. or British spies to make it into Russia because every time a spy would enter Russia, Russians were there to capture him and they could not figure out why. It turned out there was a double agent for Britain named Kim Philby who was selling the Russians information about spies. And these, these double agents, spies, continued. There was, uh, even into the 80s, the United States couldn't figure out why so many of their infiltrators were getting captured and caught. And so they thought, maybe we have a mole. And they went, um, which is someone who's 
claims to be working for us, but is feeding information to the enemy. And I don't remember his name. I think his name was Ames. They found out from his bank statements that he had been the one selling spy secrets to Russia and had received $2.7 million. He was captured and he's still apparently in jail today. But this $2.7 million had completely dulled his conscience because every time he spilled the beans, one of his fellow citizens was getting executed and captured, including one of this, I don't remember his name, but the US's best spy in Russia was a Russian general, and he'd made it higher up into Soviet hierarchy than, than any other person. But he was revealed as a spy, and he was killed. So there is some fascinating stuff when you get into the whole double agents and spies, which I'm not able to get into anymore. In 1953, Joseph Stalin passed away. Even though he was such an evil man, he was still looked at as Russia's savior, and the people of Russia mourned his passing. There was a little infighting among the leaders about who should take the place, and Nikita Khrushchev took over. And in a, what was supposed to be a private speech, he told the West what Stalin had done. Khrushchev was trying to remove himself from the policies of Stalin. He, Khrushchev was a communist, but he thought if communism wasn't run by an evil dictator, but if it was just allowed to develop freely, it would actually work. He was a big, jovial, jovial, smiling bear of a person. When he came to the West, people just loved him. He was much more mild than Stalin. When Mao Zedong tried to bring his great leap forward, which to bring Chinese agriculture up to speed, Khrushchev said, don't. When we tried this collectivization of the farms that led to a famine, Mao Zedong ignored Khrushchev, went and collectivized the farms, and between 30 and 40 million Chinese peasants starved in a few years under Mao Zedong's policy, which puts as much blood on his hands as almost anybody who's ever lived up there with Hitler and Stalin. But anyway, Nikita Khrushchev had said this is what Stalin did, letting people know. Jewish intelligence got a copy of the speech, gave it to the CIA, who translated it and had it read and had it broadcast all over Europe, letting people know what Russia was like. In 19, I think, 49, Russia detonated its first atomic bomb. When Truman heard this, he encouraged the creation of the hydrogen bomb, which was 100, 100 times as powerful as the atomic bomb. The tests of this, don't trust my brain too much right now, look these things up if I'm reciting these statistics. But it was way more powerful than the atomic bomb. And one of these hydrogen bomb tests out in the ocean, it carried nuclear fallout over 80 miles to Japanese fishing trolley. They all, there was 20, 
four or five men on there, they all got sick and one of them died. They had no idea what this radiation was. So it became terrifying that Russia had the atomic bomb, that they needed the hydrogen bomb. Russia quickly caught up because of their inside information and in 1956 Russia dropped the first air dropped hydrogen bomb that could go off which really set the stage for the nuclear arms race where they eventually developed a policy of MAD, Mutual Assured Destruction. The US policymakers thought that the best way to avoid a nuclear war is to have it set up that if one country makes a nuclear attack, it's going to immediately lead to its own suicide. It's a very dangerous game of chicken to be playing with a country that doesn't value human life. They kicked it into high gear, producing if not hundreds and thousands of these nuclear weapons. And some of these then the United States developed multiple warheads, nuclear weapons that could carry 10 nuclear heads. And each of these heads could destroy like a 50 mile circle, wipe it out. And these 10, one these bombs, once in the air, 10 heads would spread out different ways in each direction. Just incredible destruction. So this whole optimism we had at the beginning of the 1900s and how science was gonna lead to utopia, was now making it seem like these mad scientists had the world on the edge of nuclear collapse. Russia shocked the world by launching the first satellite in 1957. Eisenhower said, well, we gotta hurry up and let's launch our next, our own satellite into space. So the world watched as the American satellite on top of the rocket rose a few feet, tipped over and burst into flames. <laughs> making the West panic that the Russia was way ahead of them in the space race. Russia quickly flexed its muscle by putting a dog into orbit. <laughs> Angering pet owners all over the United States. Then in 1961, there was, the communist policies had nothing in East Germany on East Berlin, sorry, compared to the economic prosperity that was happening in West Berlin. And there was a mass migration. And one morning the Russians woke up and uh, the Berliners woke up and there was a wall being built right through the heart of the city, right along the lines of what was the Russian sector versus the Allied sector. A lot of people made a dash through it, jumping through the barbed wire. There was houses right along the sector line and before those windows could get sealed in people were jumping through the window into the arms of West Berliners trying to pull them through and this wall became an iron curtain from 1961 until it fell in 1989 and families were divided they could no longer travel through this wall was actually a symbol of Soviet defeat it was telling the world the West system is better and that's why we need to put up a wall. But this wall ended up, or a barbed wire fence, ended up being put along pretty much all the satellite countries that were bound by the Warsaw Pact. In 1959, 
one really good thing happened and one really bad thing happened. The good thing was that my dad was born, and hence I was born later. The next thing, <laughs> the next event that was not so great is Fidel Castro staged a revolution. Commun Cuba was a favorite des vacation destination for Americans. Americans owned a lot of vacation resorts, different industries there. And Fidel Castro said his revolution. He killed 500 officials that were on the island, executed them, even though in this documentary watched, he boasted about how this was a bloodless revolution. I guess he forgot about these 500 men he had executed. He privatized, he stole all the land from the foreigners and just gave it to the public. The United States did not like this and wanted Fidel Castro killed. John F. Kennedy came to power and he won the election in 1960, became president in 1961. Wanted to take exiled Cubans and make it look like they were invading Cuba and that they would kill Fidel Castro with U.S. backing that the world wasn't supposed to know about. So it would just look like it was just Cubans coming home. Well, the United States made mistakes. They didn't give the proper air cover. They got the time zones wrong. And so these invading Cubans, all of them were either killed or captured. It was a total embarrassment to the newly created CIA, Central Intelligence Agency. It was the Bay of Pigs fiasco. Cuba, uh, Fidel Castro was furious at the United States for intervening in his policies like this. He asked Russia, can you come support us? I will declare myself to be a communist nation if you come support us. <coughs> the Russians managed to smuggle in 40,000 men and several medium-range ballistic missiles, nuclear weapons, and set them up and ready them to fire that were able to reach almost every US city except for Seattle. Cuba's only 90 miles from Florida. The United States discovered this on a U-2, like not the, like the plane. <laughs> this was before Bono. The U-2 flight spy mission discovered that in Cuba there are nuclear missiles aimed and ready to go at the United States, which immediately put the US into a panic. Uh, John F. Kennedy put a blockade that wouldn't allow any, he said any ships coming into Cuba are going to be stopped and searched. They saw these Russian ships coming towards Cuba and the world just waited for this clash because if the Russian ships didn't obey this blockade, then it was going to be a declaration of war. Kennedy and his aides, including Robert McNamara, who was, I think, the Secretary of Defense, spent several days in the White House chewing their fingernails, wondering what are we going to do about this. The news got out, the world watched, there was panic shopping, people, there was training videos in the 50s about what to do in the case of nuclear bomb, that when you heard the shake, when you heard, when you saw the bright light, you had so many seconds to press yourself up against the wall or something really valuable, get under your school desk, which was, they all did their drills, which wasn't probably going to help a whole lot. But the world watched, 
finally, Khrushchev blinked and he honored the Russian, the John F. Kennedy's um, blockade. And that was about as close to the world ending as we came during the Cold War. Because the United States had already assembled men, got the planes ready, they were planning an invasion of Cuba. And there was missiles, it would have just been an absolute bloodbath with all the nuclear weapons that were aimed and ready to go. The agreement that Kennedy and Khrushchev came was that John F. Kennedy promised to not invade Cuba if the Russians would take their missiles home and John F. Kennedy, which the public didn't hear about, would also remove the short-range missiles that they had aimed on Russia in Turkey. So the crisis was averted for a little while. We're kind of running out of time. Vietnam was an absolute mess. It was another one of those countries that was divided north and south. Ho Chi Minh, it was a French colony. Ho Chi Minh was a communist leader. He overthrew French control, received Russian aid. The United States officially sent in 16,000 men into South Vietnam to train men. John F. Kennedy was assassinated in November 1963. Lyndon Johnson came to power and in 1964 Johnson claimed, and they still don't know exactly what happened, that a U.S. battleship, the Maddox, was attacked by North Vietnam. So he asked for the it was, was in the Gulf of Tonkin, which is just off Vietnam, for the Tonkin Resolution, which increased the men. And the United States continued to send more men from between 64 till they pulled out in 73. By 68 or 69, they had 500,000, half a million men in South Vietnam. And it was a terrible time for these soldiers because there was no clear-cut strategy for victory. It was basically just survive until the North Vietnam give up. The South Vietnam had been infiltrated by communists and they, you couldn't tell just by looking at someone if it was a friendly South Vietnam or a, or a communist sympathizer who would shoot you and blow you up. United States, the supply lines for North Korea were in neutral areas that they didn't want to just bomb, which they eventually bombed. The Vietnam War led to a real backlash and a countercultural revolution as the young people decided that their parents' generation had, were evil and that they were immoral, invading other countries, just pull out of Vietnam. There was several war demonstrations. The United States had, had re-brought the, instituted the draft. So Canada got some new citizens as there was draft dodgers, people escaping the draft coming to Canada. So finally, the Americans admitted defeat. But by the 70s, the United States was no longer a proud superhero. They felt depressed, they had a real economic depression. The State of Israel came into existence in 1948, in part due to the sympathy that 
they received when the news of the Holocaust reached the rest of the world. And so the United Nations, out of sympathy, gave Israel a state where and they could be protected, their own place. There was a six-day war where Israel doubled its size by attacking Egypt and I think another nation there, maybe Syria. In the Yom Kippur War, the United States backed Israel. The Arab nations who had the majority of the oil, OPEC, retaliated on the US by refusing to sell oil to any country that had backed Israel. So the price of oil just, I mean, just skyrocketed. Richard Nixon, who was president at the time, put in price controls, which meant that the price couldn't reflect the lack of supply. So people would be waiting in line for hours just to try to get fuel. The economy was weakened. The sexual revolution happened around 1960. It probably happened primarily in the 50s, but it wasn't made, didn't become a public thing where it was openly flaunted until the 60s. The birth control pill was approved by the FDA in 1960, which was one reason for the sexual revolution. Another reason was cars were becoming so much more common, so it was much easier for young people to get away and be private. Margaret Mead had written Coming of Age in Samoa, which was this romanticized view that the, the young people of Samoa lived in sexual freedom and liberation and they were so healthy. The ideas of Freud were making it into popular culture that neurosis was the problem, psychological problems if you were repressing your sex drive and that what was healthy was just to give free expression to it. In 1950, Hugh Hefner published the first Playboy, making pornography more acceptable. All of these things led to a widespread sexual revolution. In the, in the war demonstrations, the young people's motto was make love, not war. It's interesting that one of the most immoral generations of, in Americans, as far as giving into drugs and sex, was one of the most vocal about the immorality of their parents' generation. The United States went through Watergate where Nixon tried to, the press had got a hold of some incriminating documents that Nixon felt put US at risk, security at risk. So they hired people to break into the Watergate hotel to try to re retrieve these documents. That became a scandal which led to the revealing that there was had tapes in the White House, and when they listened to the transcripts of the tapes, they couldn't believe the corruption that was going on. Nixon resigned before he was impeached, and Gerald Ford came to power and pardoned Richard Nixon, which led to his approval ratings plummeting. Jimmy Carter replaced Ford, apparently had the eloquence. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even say it. Eloquence of a mortician, something that I apparently have topped. <laughs> People were excited that there was born-again Jimmy Carter in the White House, but he turned to be, out to be a very ineffectual president, 
who really floundered in foreign policy with the communists. Ronald Reagan came in and was the hero, and I'm sure if you want more information about Ronald Reagan, just talk to my father-in-law. He'll be happy to tell you what an amazing man Ronald Reagan was, and I concur on almost all of it. Communism eventually collapsed, thanks in part to Ronald Reagan's continuing to put pressure on them. Uh, the United, after Brezhnev, I think, died, they went through several political leaders, and then Gorbachev, Mikhail Gorbachev came to power in 85. He tried to bring in Perestroika, which was kind of a restructuring of, the, of communism, and Glasnost, which was supposed to give citizens more freedom to voice their displeasure. And once the people in Russia and Europe got a little taste of freedom, it was uncontrollable. The wall was finally torn down in 1989. Something else that led to Russia's demise was they had decided to invade Afghanistan, and the United States sent billions of dollars worth of weapons to arm the fundamentalist Muslims, which seemed like a great idea at the time. Afghanistan was kind of Russia's Vietnam but they didn't have a strong enough economy. But for years, Russia just kept pouring money and lives into Vietnam, and it was guerrilla warfare there as well. This, all this, the weapons that they had given to fundamentalist Muslims, after the Soviet Union collapsed, the Muslims first used these weapons on each other, making that a, a war mess. And then it led to the war in the desert storm in which Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. People said that that was going to be a, a war that was going to cost hundreds of thousands of U.S. lives, but under General Schwarzkopf, they just bombed the Halifax out of the area, and it resulted in very few loss of lives for the Americans, but it was not real friendly to <clears throat> the other guys. So supper is just around the corner. We're kind of ending on a depressing note when we look at how humanity killed each other. Tomorrow morning is Easter Sunday, and we're going to look at a resurrection of sorts that, has, that came out of the moral decay that the US faced. There's an evangelical awakening that started in the 40s and continued. and led to probably the indirectly led to the salvation of almost all of you we're going to look at new awakenings that have happened in africa we're going to look at the way the, the church has flourished in china and then we're going to look at some takeaway points as we continue to evaluate what is our role in this ongoing story of church history